This show is about your mental health. While it's supported by the pillars of positivity and hope, if you find yourself in crisis, please reach out for help. In many communities in both the United States and Canada, you can dial 211 to be connected to mental health and crisis services in your region. While it may seem like it at times, you are not alone. She was literally about to be at the top of her game. In 1999, at 20 years old, Kendra Fisher from Kincartan, Ontario, had won a spot as a goalie on the Canadian national women's hockey team. Unfortunately, anxiety got the best of her. She was forced to leave training camp. Fast forward to 2018. Kendra and her wife are overjoyed after seeing the ultrasound of their unborn child and hearing his tiny heartbeat. One day later, though, elation turns to sorrow as that tiny heart stops beating. They named him River. And again, anxiety, stress, and depression put Kendra to the test. The incredible and inspirational story of Kendra Fisher in her own words, right now on The Happy Molecule. Hello, welcome to The Happy Molecule. I'm Kevin Frankish. River would have been three years old this month. Kendra Fisher has spent the last four weeks running for her son. She's raising money for children's hospitals, but with each step, she is accomplishing something else, healing. Hello, Kendra. Thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I am actually excellent. I, I just finished my 5K run for today, and it's always so much better once it's done. I always like to emphasize that question, how are you? I don't think I, we do that enough. No, and I appreciate it because it's... Uh, it's funny when somebody asks you the question for a second time, it actually makes you think about whether or not your answer was just a, a polite expectation and the, the expected response to the niceties of being social or whether or not you actually meant it. And, and right now I'm feeling pretty good. Wow. If there has ever been a true soldier in the fight for better mental health, it's Kendra Fisher. You have been there and back. Uh, when did you first start feeling? And and I and, and often the way that mental health issues uh, present themselves is you just don't feel right. You feel yeah. off. So yeah. when did you first start feeling off? It's so true. And that's, uh, I mean, it's funny because every time I tell this story, that's exactly how it starts. I just started to feel off. Um, I- uh, and I mean, it's weird, I think, because I think as far along in the journey as I am now, my answer changes because I'm more aware now of how off I was feeling, how young in my life. Um, but in living the journey and living through this experience, I would say it was after high school. Um, I, uh, I, I kind of ended up in the perfect storm for everything that I was living with to kind of manifest. I, I had injured myself in a car accident. And uh, for the first time in my life, all of the things that I was doing unknowingly to cope with what I live with were gone for a while. Um, I wasn't staying physically active. I wasn't out being social. I wasn't kind of in a routine that supported my mental health in a positive way and, and kind of laying down and dealing with that injury um, I started to be aware of all of the things that I was actually managing to subdue with my lifestyle. 
And uh, it, it started to feel off. It started to get to a point where it was the, you know, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't catch my breath. My heart was coming out of my chest and no clue what's wrong. And then it kind of kept manifesting into different symptoms that ultimately head to toe. I just, I, I wasn't okay anymore. And uh, all of the doctors told me I was fine, told me I was healthy, but I, I could barely function anymore. And, and yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of when it started to take over for me. But you were living the dream. I mean, you were, especially for a female hockey player, because, yeah. it, you know, it's still that point where there are very few opportunities to advance and, and to keep it going into mm-hmm. adult life. But you, because of your ability, because of your talent, had made it to yeah. a point where you were going to probably go to the Olympics for us. Yeah. And, it, uh, and this it, happened. You're not wrong. Um, it, uh, uh, you know, and I, 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 I want to say you're right on the, on the, on the pinnacle of that. I hope I would have had the chance to play in the Olympics. I'm certainly not going to take away from the, the ladies that did end up filling those positions because mm. we've had some fantastic goalies for team Canada. Um, but certainly that was, that was the dream. That was the goal. And uh, quite literally the day that I made team Canada after being part of the organization and the program for a few years, um, it, it was the day that I realized I couldn't hide this anymore. And uh, the day they told me I made team Canada was the day I quit. Tell me about that moment. <sighs> it depends on the day. It depends on the day. Sometimes it's this, you know, kind of passing moment that I can forget about. Sometimes it's all encompassing. It's, uh, I had gotten out to team Canada camp. It was 99. Um, at that point I'd been to specialists. I'd been to doctors. I was trying to figure out what it was that I was feeling. And, and like I said, it started with what felt like a heart issue and it moved into what felt like something in my head um, in a physical sense and, you know, something in my stomach, I felt sick all the time and, you know, everything I did to kind of take the traditional response to, I don't feel well, go to the doctor. Um, I wasn't getting any answers and nobody could tell me what was wrong at that point. Nobody considered, um, a psychological perspective it was it was just kind of crossing off the potential the possibilities of i think think it's important we point out this was 1999 okay Uh, because i want to talk to you about that later in in what Mm -hmm. how we've come so far so i i apologize Mm -hmm. i just want to really set up the scene here that it's 1999 so so you again went to doctors yeah they were looking for something physical no doubt a hundred percent. You know, I'd, I'd been taking frequent trips to the emergency room, couldn't breathe, couldn't, couldn't, you know, I thought I was going to have a seizure. I thought I was going to faint. I thought I was going to pass out. It was this constant state of extreme physical um, distress and nobody could find anything wrong with me. And at the same time, you know, life continued as it does. And, and my tryouts, crept up on me and somehow I I managed to get out to Calgary for tryouts. And I remember that first day at tryouts, I just, I went through kind of the motions of self-preservation. I I did my two hour practice on ice. I came off, found a stairwell, broke down, got kind of pulled myself back together, went, did my off ice training, 
found a bathroom, broke down. Um, and by about seven o'clock that evening, I just, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to hide it. I, I knew, I knew once we got to the part of the day where I was in a dorm with my teammates and it was going to be their constant presence and I didn't have anywhere that I could escape to without having to answer for it. I knew that it was going, I was going to be caught. I, I was going to be figured out that, that something was off. And, uh, so I lied. I, I lied to the coaches of team Canada. I told them my grandma just happened to live in Calgary and, and had been rushed to the hospital. My family was flying out to be with her. Um, in order to actually get through the tryouts, my family, my parents actually had arranged to fly out uh, separately from me just so I knew somebody was there just to have that safety in place. And so that night I left camp and I went to the hotel room where my, my father was staying. My mom hadn't flown out quite yet. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to figure out what was wrong with me. I tried to talk it through. I was trying to be rational and logical and, and, you know, trying to reassure myself that all the doctors told me I was fine. So, you know, what's going on here? And I, I couldn't get past the feeling like they were missing something. I couldn't get past the fact that I couldn't even breathe anymore. I, I just, I couldn't survive and something wasn't right. And uh, the next morning I, I went and met with the coaches and, and I sat down with them in an office kind of next to the rink. And I, you know, I, I explained to them what had been going on, um, w which didn't really give any information because I didn't have any. It, it was, you know, something's wrong. It feels extreme. The doctors are telling me I'm fine, but something's not okay. And uh, yeah, they asked me if it would help any to know I made Team Canada. They, they helped. They, I, I guess, were hoping that the 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 pressure would be released. I think they were hoping that it was just a matter of I was so. Um, hyper-focused on this, that maybe that was the issue. Uh, and it, uh, it wasn't that it was, it was so much bigger than that. And uh, it's obviously one of the most memorable moments of my life, but I wish I could forget it because the answer was, it didn't help. It, it didn't help at all. I, I couldn't even get through my days anymore. It didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't have a place to live in me that I could exist at that level anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I quit Team Canada and I, I took the red eye back to Toronto that night. What was that trip like? Horrible. Um, gravel, a lot of gravel <laughs> to try to just calm myself down and sleep. And, you know, my, my poor father, I'm sure, didn't feel his arm for the next four hours because I just kind of collapsed on his shoulder and... and you know, the only conscious thought I had was I just gave up my life. I just walked away from the only dream I've ever had. This is, this is who I am. This is my identity. And, and now what, what do I do now? I want to, I want to share something with you um, because my, that day for me happened in 2006. And, and I bring this up not to compare or, mm -hmm. you know, one up or anything like that. I'm hoping that anybody listening out there can sort of identify with that day. And, yeah. and for me that day, I remember I was on the air and I had to go home and I left and everybody's like incredulous. They're, they're looking at me and like, what you're, you're on TV. You, you can't just go. And I remember driving home crying all the way. I thought, I just thought it's over. And I don't, you know, 
everything. Just I thought it was over. I'm not. I'm. I'm just talking about career and 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 everything like that. I just thought it was completely yeah. over. And I think that is is part of what we need to do. Is is we need to let others know to realize how hard that moment is. But but there is hope after that. Even though you feel hopeless, there mm-hmm. is hope after that. Yeah. I. I mean. You know, there's so many different facets to consider, too. It's it's what's available now versus what was available mm-hmm. then. It's where are we in the conversation? How, how, you know, where is your support? Where is your reality at? And, and are you able to kind of engage in that journey in a manner that doesn't mean you have to walk away from everything, but hopefully you can do so in a way where you can find support you know, on that path, if, if that's what you choose, but certainly, you know, it's, uh, I know for athletes and I know for, especially for elite athletes where it's kind of that it it is your world, you know, as, as a, as an athlete, hockey was my world for a very long time. Um, and they say every elite athlete dies two deaths. It's, it's that, you know, first death of trying to figure out life after hockey. And it's that, you know, hopefully much later in life, that second uh, passing. And I think it's, you know, it's so true of many situations in life where we have this existence that we think is the epitome of who we are and defines us and and it's all encompassing. And we mistake a different journey as a failure. We mistake it as a, as a, uh, a lesser. And, you know, there's not a, there's not a day in day in my life that I would turn around and go back and and choose the life I could have had over where I am now. May we talk about River? Absolutely. So, who's River? Uh, River would be my three year old son today, but uh, we uh, we lost River uh, three years ago. Uh, my wife was thirty two weeks pregnant. And, uh, we had the, uh, we had the supports of IBF. We had, we had kind of that overly monitored pregnancy where every check leading up to it is constant, you know, it's it's, IVF in itself is mental hell in in a lot of cases. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. And certainly the highs and lows of it for anybody, it's, it's so trying. Um, I feel like in our situation, it was a little bit different because it's not like we were there because one of us were having an issue. It just science, right? It, it doesn't work that way. So um, our necessity for having IVF I- included was very much out of necessity. It wasn't because either of us were struggling with an issue. Um, but yeah, the process was, was trying. And so we were, we were seven months into our pregnancy and, uh, the one night I got home from hockey actually. And, and my wife just, uh, she looked at me and said, I don't think I felt it move today. And, and the day before that she had had a, a perfect ultrasound everything was great everything was fine everything was normal nothing was wrong with the pregnancy we hadn't had any issues with the pregnancy um so by that said, point you could you could hear the heartbeat then 
Yeah, yeah, the day before. The day mm-hmm. before she she had her checkup. Um and then uh it was a it was a Tuesday night and I got back from hockey at about ten thirty. I was playing in line and I got home and she just said, you know, I I don't I don't think I felt a move today. And you know, trying to be the rational, responsible, let's think this through before we panic. Um, you know, what what did you do today? And she had met up with a a friend and it had been a busy day and I said, you know, you you were probably just caught up in everything else and hadn't really been paying attention. I'm sure I'm sure it's okay. You know, let's let's uh let's let's check with Dr. Google, right? Let's let's find out what Dr. Google has to say. And for the first time ever, Dr. Google didn't say you have a brain tumor and you're going to die tomorrow. Dr. <laughs> Google actually said, um it's not uncommon. It's it's not uncommon later in a pregnancy. There's less room. There's less movement. You know, don't panic. And uh, she had an appointment the next day um, with uh, her endocrinologist for her thyroid. She had an appointment. So she was going to be next to where our clinic was, um, where the ultrasound gets done. And so I said, you know, why don't we just wait it out? And, and tomorrow morning, you, you've got to go in anyway. Um and if you're still worried, then go over and, and ask. And so I, at the time, was actually in my recruit class as a firefighter. So I said, you know, do you want me to stay home? And she's like, you can't do that. You, 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 you've got to be there. And so we woke up early that morning, the next day, and it was uh, on May 16th. And we... Uh, we kind of tried all the tricks like ice water and, and juice with sugar in it, ice cream, chocolate, finally coffee. And, and she still wasn't feeling anything. And so she said, you know, it's, it's okay. I've got my appointment this afternoon. I'll go get them to check. I'm sure we're just overreacting. And, and I went into work and I, uh, she texted me at about nine 30 that morning. She's like, I can't wait anymore. Like I still, I haven't felt a move. And so she uh she went down to the hospital and and i got a text uh, shortly after that just said there's no heartbeat um and uh yeah so i left i left work and i i got home and it's uh i i mean there aren't words it was it was three days um before he delivered and uh you know to this day, they, they didn't find any reason for it. They didn't, uh, there was no known cause. There was no, there was nothing they found that suggested that there was something that happened. Um, it just is. And uh, so, yeah, we, uh, our son was born on May 19th and, and we got to spend some, some hours with him that day. And, and that was that. Where were you in your mental health journey before inception um of river yeah before before all that came along before the ivf what where were you in your mental health journey um i've been pretty sound now for okay for quite a few years i mean i would say that my kind of measure of when i would say i hit recovery is around 2010 okay and what did the entire pregnancy do to you and the result? What did that do to your mental health journey? <clears throat> well, 
so I mean, our story is a little bit uh, intense there. So my wife also lives with mental illness. Um, her diagnosis is uh, she lives with bipolar disorder and as well borderline personality disorder. And so, uh, you know, we we've both always been very engaged in our in our mental health and, and making sure that we're kind of doing the proper check ins and the supports and and neither of us really shy away from you know, dealing with it, really taking it head on. And uh, so River actually would have been our, our second. We have an older, an older boy, um, Finley. And so th that in terms of the pregnancy was a much more difficult pregnancy, I would say, than River, just because we, uh, we got involved with the perinatal mental health program at the hospital we were at. Um, to kind of support Christy, she had to come off some meds to to get pregnant. And I mean, so much of mental illness is is uh, affected by hormone and is affected by kind of those ups and downs. So I mean, obviously, it was it was extreme. It was the process was extreme. The the uh, the pressure of it was extreme. Um, I think a lot of my role was to try to support her. So I, I, I act very well in that role. I think it's something that I, I kind of go in search of because I feel um, very confident in the role of being a support. And so pouring my focus into that kind of takes away from my own instability. And so that's kind of where I, I poured it into that. So, I mean, our first pregnancy was more difficult, I would say. Uh, the pregnancy with River was was shockingly easy, comparatively. It was, her moods were better, it made it easier. Um, we kind of had some idea of what to expect in the process at that point. So, it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it felt a lot easier than, than the first pregnancy, um, obviously, and until until the end. So I, I'd like to know about the strength of Kendra Fisher. Hmm. Why is it as, as horrible as all of these things were, you are sitting here talking to me, you know, you, you seem well, uh, you seem in good spirits. Where is that strength coming from? Um, years and years of practice. Um, I, uh, you know, in the beginning when I first got sick, it, it took me over. I spent five years unable to leave my apartment. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't be alone. Um, I was a really horrible patient. I, I was somebody who... I mean, after I left Team Canada, you know, five days later, they called me and they they asked me if I'd see one of their doctors. They offered me one of their doctors. And I remember for the first time in, in you know, the year that this had been happening at the level that it had been happening, um, I, I was excited. I thought, you know, Team Canada has got to have the right doctor. Somebody's finally going to give me answers and, and mm -hmm. we're going to get through this. And um 
and they told me it was a sports psychologist and I just remember being pissed off. I remember, <laughs> I remember being offended. I remember thinking, you know, like, yeah, like I was insulted. They're just going to be um, someone who wants to tell you how to get out there and win and, and how yeah, to, how like to, to just, not let your, your opponent uh, get into your head. Well, and not only that, but forget the sports part of the title. I don't need a shrink. Like, there's nothing wrong with my head. I just <laughs> oh, made Team okay. Canada. Yeah. Like, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Just, just leave me alone. Um, but you know, then it was it, it was kind of that really quick realization of if Team Canada needs to hear from a sports psychologist, then I'm okay. Then that I, I got to do it. Like, I got to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to go talk to her and and you know, she can tell them they're way off base and I can get on with trying to figure out what's actually wrong with me. Um, and I remember going and that was the day I met Kate and, uh, Kate, uh, Kate was my psychologist until, uh, till I lost her last month. Um, and you know, she was so much a part of, of, helping me to create a foundation of how to live with mental illness and you know it's her fault I run it's her fault that I'm uh, it's probably her fault for a lot of the reasons I I have the strength I have um gratefully and uh yeah I was I was horrible and she stuck with me I was horrible in that I was defiant it you know when I finally got my diagnosis it was you know you guys don't know what you're talking about I mean I just made team Canada. I don't live with anxiety and depression. That sounds so weak. That's not me. Like that's come on. Um, And then gradually as I got worse and worse and worse and kind of got forced into that place of accepting that, you know, I didn't know best and I didn't know everything. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't my best advocate. I wasn't my best support. And I certainly didn't have the answers. Um, and I actually started to listen a bit better. And, you know, gratefully, I, I found the perfect match in, in having Kate kind of lead me through cognitive behavioral therapy and then introducing the importance of cardio and running and good nutrition and yoga and mindfulness and deep breathing and, and really kind of mastered all of the different facets of coping strategies and tools that that I would need to get to a place of recovery. And you know, when all was said and done, that was a fairly intensive 10 year journey of five years of being completely complacent and just treading water and barely surviving to recognizing that wasn't enough for me. I didn't want to live that life. That wasn't a life. Um, and it was either, it, it was either I give up or I, I learn something better. I learned something different and, and I don't know where I found it after that five years, but I, I chose to I chose to learn. I chose to fight. And I, uh, I'm very grateful that I, I had a very good support system um, that got kind of learned over time. And I, I gave up some of that control and that feeling that I knew best and, and accepted that I needed to try anything that people suggested and, and see what worked for me. And after 10 years, I... I was good. I felt good. And I mean, when I say that, I I was never cured. I've never, I've never been free of anxiety and depression. Um, But I manage it. I know what it is. I know how to deal with it. I know, I know how to face it and how to, to coexist with it. Um, 
and you know after 10 years i i got to this place where it was like okay i'm i'm good i feel good in fact i felt better than i ever had because now i i was aware of what i'd been living with for so long and i could manage it and and my life just was i was so much more at peace in it and at that moment, I realized the thing that I was happiest about, the thing I was most proud of was after that 10 year journey, still nobody knew I was living with mental illness. And that was the biggest part for me. That's not, that wasn't going to be my legacy. It wasn't going to be this team Canada goalie falls apart. And, you know, this is, this is where it ends up. And so I, I lied. I lied to everybody. I, you know, as far as they knew, I had a back injury and I just kind of disappeared from life. And, and I was getting back on my feet. I, I tried it for Team Canada's inline hockey team. I, I went to the Worlds. Um, and then I, uh, I remember hearing about Darren Richardson. And that was it for me. You know, Darren Richardson, Luke Richardson's daughter at 14 years of age, she, uh, she took her own life. And I remember when I heard about that thinking, I'm part of the problem. I'm, I'm, my silence is part of the problem. My inability to admit that this is my reality is part of the problem because there's so many people like Darren who they, they just don't know there is hope. They, they don't know you can live with this. They don't know there is an alternative. And so for me, I think I kind of got fixated on that. And I remember getting a hold of Kate and, um, you know, I asked if I could help. I was, I was never going to become a psychologist. I was never going to go back to med school. But is there anything I can do to help at least one person find tomorrow? Is, is there anything I can do within my means? And uh, she asked if I could share my story. And I just, I remember laughing. I just, I remember thinking that's such a horrible idea. I mean, I live with anxiety and OCD and, and depression and agoraphobia and panic attacks and a panic disorder. I mean, it lets like the recipe for disaster for, for public speaking, who, like, how could you even ask me that? And, and then I thought, you know what, nothing could ever make me feel as bad as I did 10 years before that, when I couldn't see tomorrow coming. And so I started sharing my story and uh, it, it, that was the beginning of, of, what has just become a journey of allowing myself to be vulnerable and real and honest. And it's as self-serving as it is supportive for others. Uh, I mean, to live honestly, to not fear vulnerability, to allow yourself to exist in the truest version of yourself and, and be comfortable with that. It, it's just, it's so empowering. And if that is perceived as strength for others, if that is perceived as helping others, then aren't I the luckiest? I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a really incredible journey when you allow yourself to connect with other people and really in the world, especially today, those connections, it's, it's what we need the most. And, you know, it, it's that mutual support, that mutual ability to show up for one another. That's where hope lives. It, it's not something I'm offering others. It's something that we create together. You use words like uh, that I love, uh, the word hope. Uh, yeah. uh, the, the words living with depression rather than suffering from depression. Mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. words finding tomorrow. 
And, and those are things that are in such short supply for someone living with depression who doesn't have the support. And the reason I brought up the fact that 1999 was significant, it wasn't that long ago. It really was not. And what we have learned about any mood disorder has, has, we have learned so, so much in such a short, short time. Mm -hmm. I think we have been living for for way too long thinking that we had conquered the psychological universe. You know, (laughs) you know, Dr. Freud told us everything we needed to know. Dr. Spock. I mean, it, it, it it didn't matter. We, we had conquered it. And by the seventies and eighties and nineties, okay, there's nothing more to be learned, but oh my gosh, what we've done and the strides we've taken Mm -hmm. have been incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, and how far we have to go still is also incredible. I I mean, I I think that, you know, I'm as, I'm as quick as the next person to say we've done so much good. And then I'm also the realist who's going to point out, we still have so far to go. Uh, I mean, um, all right. So where do we have to go? What do we have to do? Action, action. We, we need to actually partake and continue to partake in a way that is physical, in a way that is tangible. Um, the conversations around stigma, the conversations around uh, accepting mental illness, uh, they're great. They're fantastic. There's a place for them. Um, and do I think the stigma still exists? Uh not as blatantly as it used to by any means. But I think that we're still in a place until people continuously find the ability to be open about what they're living with. And, you know, whether it's employers, whether it's individuals, whether it's at schools, teachers, students, parents, children, um, you know, until it's actually okay to live in that version of yourself and and not feel as though you need to hide it in order to succeed in life, um, I think we have work to do, you know, and I'll give you a prime example. I'm a firefighter. And, you know, you look at my diagnosis, I knew going into firefighting, I mean, you're you're gonna Google me. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna know my story. It's not something I shy away from. Well, you know, it's it, it's funny when people don't really know me and it's like, OK, so you live with panic and anxiety and depression and agoraphobia and OCD and you're a firefighter. Do I really want you showing up <laughs> if my house is on fire? Um, and it's funny because I got asked that question, you know, in my interview, I didn't get asked that question specifically. Let me backtrack for a second. The question I got asked was, how are you going to manage horrible shifts? I mean, as a first responder, obviously, without doubt, we see things every shift that most people may face once in a lifetime. Everybody's going to have that story at the end of their life where it's, you know, the guy at the table next to me had a heart attack or I drove past this horrible accident. But in reality, what first responders actually run towards every day, it's not the norm. Um you know, and the question was, how are you going to manage that? How are you going to manage when you show up and there is a catastrophic or a tragic or a horrible scene to deal with? And 
it was bizarre, but I thought to myself, you know, you've got a lot of candidates who have spent their whole life training physically to be a great firefighter. And I've spent the last 20 years training for the fact that I feel that way every day. Uh, I've spent the last 20 years training for when something is so debilitating and so imminent and so dreadful internally that I can't see surviving until tomorrow, I know to put supports in place right away and I know how to work through that. And I thought, you know, I, I've, I've essentially trained for that moment, my, my last 20 years without fail. Um, and I see it as an asset. I, I see what I've been through as an asset. I see my ability to walk into a situation and understand that it's not black and white. You're dealing with a person. You're dealing with their feelings. You're dealing with that horrible moment. And I think I can help you work through that piece of it. I see that as a benefit. Mm-hmm. And more, so more empathy. And, well, and and more more understanding, understanding in a way that yeah. that other people can recognize. Right. I mean, yeah. if, if you were to have a panic attack right now. And I am completely unfamiliar with panic attacks and anxiety. In all likelihood, I'm going to tell you, you need to calm down and you need to stop worrying. (laughs) And I'm going to, you know, all of those things that when you're in that moment are just absolutely patronizing and you want to, you know, lash out because you're sitting there thinking you don't get it. Like you, you don't get that. I can't breathe right now. And it's not because I don't want to breathe. It's because I can't breathe. Like, (laughs) and you know, when all of a sudden you can approach that differently and it's like, okay, look, like I, I know what you're feeling right now. And, and when I'm doing your vitals, I'm going to hide the monitor. So you're not sitting there looking at your heart rate <laughs> yeah. and trying to figure out whether you're having a heart attack. And I'm going to make sure that I reassure you of the things that you are most likely fixated on right now. And then we're going to deal with the rest. And it, it's just a different experience. And I think that it's, you know, coming back to that, how do we, how do we live openly with this? Um, You know, I I got an opportunity to get my second vaccine and I was on shift and uh, you know, I don't have any fear of needles. I don't have any problem with needles, but one of the things that triggers my anxiety is the potential of side effects and the potential of, and and without shame, um, the potential of like, throwing up and and just feeling that ill you know like i'm not that's that's not a good place for me that's not where i (laughs) that's not where i excel i turn into a three-year-old version of myself and i need you (laughs) to coddle me um and it's you know it's this really empowering place to be able to go to one of your colleagues and say look like i'm gonna go get this vaccine because of course i i feel like i want to get it but just to give you a heads up, it's probably going to make me anxious. Can we sit down? Will you just sit and talk with me if I, if I need you to? And to be able to have that openness, to be able to do, you know, to have that safety in place. So, so, so that you said that to your platoon? 100%. Not my platoon, but the, you know, a couple of guys that I yeah, that okay. I was there with. And I just said, look, like. Good for you. Yeah, I'm going to go get the needle. 100%. And, and that's the point, right? It's yeah. That's what I mean. We need to get past talking about it. It needs to be okay to be honest about it. Because it doesn't make me less of a firefighter. Mm-hmm. I'm still up for it. If we get, you know, tones go off, I'm going to be on that truck and I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I mean, firefighters are known for having each other's backs. Yeah. And that doesn't just simply mean, you know, at, at, at a scene. No, it's having each no. other's backs. 
and their and, welfare and, that's and their the well-being. Difference, right? Like it, it's a matter of there's a lot of people who would feel like they were less of a person or being a wimp for, or, you know, to come out and say to somebody, you know what, this is probably going to make me pretty uncomfortable. And what I need from you is if I'm really uncomfortable and I come up to you and I say, you know, <laughs> I just need you to fill the room with me for a few minutes here and let this pass with me. Are you good mm -hmm. with that? You know, to be able to kind of set that, that support up for yourself and set it up so that you know what you need is in place instead of it being a situation where it's, you know, more likely I'm going to have to take the day off work or I'm going to have to be away for this period of time. You know, there's so many places in life where if we could make those small concessions and be honest and show up for each other, we could skip a lot of a lot of what then tacks on to create that stigma. Yeah. And, and you know, you've hit on something there that, that I tell people all the time about anxiety attacks and panic attacks is to sort of if one is happening yeah. um, to grab someone and to say, listen, yeah. I am having a panic attack. Yeah. And they're going to look at you and say, really, you, you don't look like it. Yeah, I am. Can yeah. you sit with me for a moment and can we talk about it? Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is an important lesson for both sides, for, for, yeah. for the victim, you know, I'll call them the victim, I'm sorry, but, but, you know, to sort of sit, to reach out for help, yeah. but for someone who is a support to realize you're not going to look like you're having a panic attack, no. but inside no. you are dying. Yeah. You are screaming inside. So just yeah. to understand that and holding a hand and just listening 100%. is better than any pill in the world. Yeah. And yeah. that's another message we have to get out there. Well, and I think that that's the piece that I try to encourage the most, which is one person can make the difference. I mean, mm. yes, there's a place for doctors. There's a place for psychiatry. There's a place for uh, medicine. There's a place for all of those facets. But at the end of the day, when somebody's in crisis, being alone is the most detrimental thing that could exist. And if we could find a way to make it actually okay to have those uncomfortable conversations and those uncomfortable moments where you can honestly just say, hey, like, I need to not be alone with myself right now. I, I, it doesn't, you don't even have to understand. You don't have to know. You don't have to have the right thing to say. Like, you know, last night it was, you know, I'm sitting there and I, I said to said to my colleague, I said, you know, look, like, I don't, I, I don't need you to do anything. Nothing's going to happen. I, I know I'm going to be fine. I just might need you to sit there and talk to me so that I'm not sitting here fixated on the fact that I'm manifesting every single potential side effect from this vaccine yeah. right now. And, and, and you, you talked about being alone and people don't realize you can be alone in a crowded room. Oh, 100%. And when you reach out and you open yourself up, you're not alone anymore. No, no. It, it, and it, it takes the power away from it. Yes. That's what it does. It takes the power away from it. That's the entire concept of exposure therapy, which is something I engage in as frequently as I can. If you are fearful, if you are uncomfortable with something, if something is a trigger for you, the more you expose yourself to that thing, the less power it has over you. And, and it's so true of it every single time. And as long as you are in a place and in most instances, I have found this since I started being open about it. You know, if I try to hide it, if I try to tiptoe around it, 
that's when people act in a way that is a negative for me. You know, it's, it's when you are afraid to be honest, but there are very few people in this world that if you walk up to them and sit down and say, look, like I'm having a panic attack right now and I just need you to chill out with me. Most people aren't going to be a jerk in that moment. They're not going to judge you. They're not going to say something horrible to you. It's going to be this moment of, Oh, hang on a sec. Like you're asking something of me that is tangible and yeah, I can sit here. Why can't I? Why wouldn't I? You know, is, is there anything I can do? Um, and, and it's, you know, I think just when we kind of normalize things like that, when we give people permission to be uncomfortable and we accept the responsibility of being uncomfortable with them for a minute, it, it's such a cool learning curve. It's such a cool opportunity to really kind of reassess how we see it what the perspective is and how we can enter into that in a way that is is calming for both people and 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 in reality just knowing i had that safety in place just going to my colleague and saying i'm not scared of the needle i'm not scared i I don't think i'm gonna die there's no part of me that is questioning the science i just get kind of nervous about potential side effects and i just need to work through that even saying that out loud and knowing that there was somebody in the vicinity of where Mm -hmm. I was going to be that had that information and knew that if I came and sat down and said, Hey, you know, can we, can can we talk about nothing for a little bit? So I'm not sitting here thinking about this, even knowing that was in place was all it took for me to be okay. And people don't necessarily always understand. And and partially because we don't give them the opportunity to understand that. But people don't necessarily always understand that when I say, could you be there for me? I don't need you to actively participate. I literally just physically, Mm -hmm. I need to know that I'm not alone with this for a minute. And me knowing that you are there, that's enough. That's enough a lot of the time. I quite often compare an attack to turbulence on a plane. Uh, And, um, you know, turbulence is not going to hurt you. Turbulence does not bring a plane down. Sometimes it can be violent. Uh, It can can be bumpy uh, and it's rather unpleasant, Mm -hmm. but essentially I think you pretty well know you're going to be okay. And then there's a difference between flying alone and flying with someone's hand you can grab. And, and when you're alone turbulence and you sit there and you keep it to yourself because you don't want anyone else to think you're, you're, you know, you're, you're freaking out. So you sit in your seat and you, you suffer through it and you think, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. But then if you have someone's hand, at least you can say, oh, I don't like this. I don't yeah. like this. And yeah. they can say, it's okay. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. And then or they end. can say, I don't like it either. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ends. And, and, and then we take it a step further. What a beautiful world when you just grab the stranger's next yeah. hand next to you and you say, hey, this sucks and it's making me yeah. uncomfortable. And they say, hey, I don't disagree. I'm glad you said it because I was feeling the same thing. And all of a sudden, you've taken all of the power out of the fear. You've taken all of the the internalized terror and you've validated it mm-hmm. and you've given it a space to exist. And you've said, it's OK that you're feeling this way. So am I. OK, let's get through this. Any- and I think it's just it, it's so much. All of it is so much that for me, it's it's that literally you don't have to be somebody's best friend. You don't have to be their parent. You don't, anybody can show up for their neighbor. Anybody can show up for the person on the street that looks like, you know what? Maybe just check in on me, you know, going right back to the start of this. How are you? 
Mm-hmm. It's okay to ask somebody how they are. But my God, when you actually commit to asking somebody how they are, start accepting the responsibility of the answer might not just be fine. The, the answer might not just be okay. But the onus doesn't then mean you need to be able to fix it all for me. But it's going to make everything better if we can show up for each other for a moment. Uh, I'm going to ask you instead of how are you, how are you going to be? How am I going to be? Which direction is Kendra going in? Oh, the turn. I, want... <laughs> I uh, you know, I, I have a conference call coming up in a few minutes. And, and uh, the conference call, the title of that conference call is actually changing the world because that's how that's how we we talk uh, on my team. Um, you know, I just I. I did this kind of quasi social experiment uh, a few years back. I was driving home and I, I very responsibly ran out of gas um, between two small towns on the way back to Kincardin. Yeah, and a firefighter always being prepared. Okay, go on, Kendra. <laughs> there it is, eh? There it is, my, res- my true responsible self. Um, you know, and I, I had this moment of. I don't even remember what to do now. Like I'm between, between two very small towns. Do do they have CAA here? How long am I stuck here? I was on my way to a speaking engagement. And I thought, you know what, let's, let's try something here. And so I went onto my Facebook page and my Facebook page has, you know, a few thousand people sitting there. And I thought, let's, let's see what happens when you ask for help. Mm. And so I didn't give any information. I, 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 I didn't, I didn't want to give information because I wanted to see if people were willing to show up, just, just show up. And I said, you know, is there anybody close to mild May right now who has 15 minutes and could be my hero? I need help. And I mean, people follow my page knowing my story. So it could have been something extreme. It could have been, you know, a crisis. It could have been, I was really not okay and needed help. Um, and I think it was within like 15 minutes, I had 22 responses. And within 15 minutes of that, I had somebody standing next to my car with a jerry can of wow. gas. Wow. And it, it was the perfect, it, it was the perfect demonstration of exactly what I believe, which is if we normalize and we make it okay to say, you know what, I'm not okay. I, I need, mm-hmm. I need to get through these next 15 minutes and I can't do it alone. I need somebody to show up in whatever capacity you can. Could you just show up? I need to not be alone in this moment. If we are actually in a world where it is okay to say that, everything changes. Because there will be people who won't show up. There will be people who are not going to choose to be a support. And that's okay. It's okay that some people will not accept that. But when you actually give people the opportunity to show up, I'm always surprised 100% of the time how many people are willing, are, are, are really just, you know what, I didn't know you needed me, but if you tell me you need me, I'll be there. And it, it becomes this, this it becomes a connection that is so true and honest and, and peaceful because it's just, it's okay to say, I'm not okay right now and I don't need you to fix it, but it'd be really nice if I wasn't okay all by myself. 
and give people that opportunity and it makes the world of difference. Okay, now there's everybody out there listening saying, oh, Kendra, if I was near Meld May that day, I would have come to help you. I would have done this. Okay, folks. All right, let's 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 see how much you're willing to help Kendra right now. You don't have to be near Mild May either. You, you, are, you, you would like to see people help raise some money. That segue was health. phenomenal. Right? You have done right? I have put on the Catholic guilt there. There it is. That was uh, impressive. So I, I'm going to have to hire you, I think. <laughs> You you're looking for you you want to raise some money to to further mental health support and research. How can people well, help? And specifically in this one, I mean, I I just this past uh, this past month, I've been doing a run called the Million Reasons Run, and uh, it's actually to raise money for all of the kids' hospitals right across the country. And uh, so I am I have just completed this morning 125 kilometers of running for the month of May. Um, and so if you check out my Instagram, uh, at kfisher30, uh, there's a link there in my bio to what I've been doing. If you kind of scroll through my feed there, you'll see everything I've been up to. Uh, I'm also actually running 10k for another organization tomorrow. I'll put all that information on my Instagram. And then just as a big thank you, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I'm going to do a 50k bike <laughs> ride on Sunday. Um, because I kept challenging you guys to step up for others and, and you guys just kept stepping up. So you guys are getting me in good shape in a hurry. Um, and then uh, if you actually find me at Kfisher 30 um, and stay tuned because I, I have a, a very good friend who's also in this space who, who uh, reached out to me and told me he needs a little help being accountable right now. So we've decided we're going to create a run across the country um, uh, it'll be a virtual event, but yeah, to su- support mental health and, and uh, we're going to, we're going to have a little battle there. That's going to be fun. So. All right. Well, you come back and tell me about that. hundred uh, percent. I will put all this information on my website, the happy molecule.com and you click Excellent. on the links and Excellent. we'll have it all there. Um, Kendra, uh, you know, we we've talked about, the strides we've made since 1999 in mental health. And it's all been good. I can arguably say that what you do and what you have done and what you continue to do is as important, if not more important than any research going on in any university or hospital right now. Because what we need now more than ever is just to end the stigma and to say mental health is health and yeah. it's important. Yeah. And, you know, like any good firefighter, you would rather see people put on smoke alarms and make sure they're working yeah. and catch something before it starts burning than have to go there and, 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 and face a full-blown fire. So what you do is important. Um, my, my, my thoughts are with you and your wife, uh, over the, the loss of river and, and would have been his third birthday this month yeah. and over the loss of Kate last month. And, and thank you and keep going, keep fighting the good fight. I'll never slow down. It's, uh, it, it, uh, it became quite clear to me when I started this journey that, you know, there's, there's a lot of us who 
who need to understand better and, and to need to, to keep showing up for one another. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed to be on this journey and I'm very grateful to people like you for sharing your platform to, to kind of just have these conversations. It's not even about sharing my story. It's about uh, just really normalizing how many of us out there um, do live with mental illness. And, and as you said, you know, it's, uh, it, it's not about mental health. It is about health. And you can't have good mental health without good physical health. And you can't have good physical health without good mental health. Mm -hmm. And so why we continue to separate, it would be beyond me and has been for years, but it's, uh, it's something that I've committed to. And I, I'm, I'm on this journey for life and I'm just, I just, you know what, I'm, I'm blessed. I get to, I get to be a part of a lot of really great, uh, great people and great stories and great journeys along the way. So I appreciate it. All right, Kendra. Thank you. Okay. You take care. I hope you consider donating. Go to Kendra's Instagram account at kfisher for a link to donate to the Million Reasons Run. I'll also put that link on my website as well, thehappymolecule.com slash links. I want to hear your story about your mental health journey. Email me at thehappymolecule at gmail.com. Next episode. Mental Health on the Farm, a new campaign is launched sounding the alarm on the mental health crisis in an often ignored but very vital part of our society, farmers. Next time on The Happy Molecule. Join me for my live stream on my Facebook page Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Eastern. Until then, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and also check out The Happy Molecule Extra at thehappymolecule.com. There you'll find a link to a video version of this episode. Be able to join the conversation about mental health, learn about our Facebook Live show, and get a preview of upcoming episodes. You can email us at thehappymolecule at gmail.com. I'm Erin Davis, wishing you good mental health.